Hello, and welcome to Asia Watch, Beyond the Headlines, where we take a deeper dive into current developments in Asia of interest and impact for Canadians. My name is Stuart Beck, the President and CEO of the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Asia Watch is our free news intelligence service and features analysis on the latest news, trends, and issues in Asia that matter to Canadians. Visit our homepage to subscribe at www.asiapacific.ca. This week's big news is the coup in Myanmar, and I'm talking today with Julian Yen, who has been covering Myanmar for Asia Watch, and this week wrote a longer dispatch on the military takeover. A recent McGill grad in politics and economics, Julia has been a close follower of elections in Asia for the past few years. Last summer, she started really dialing into the situation in Myanmar, including trying to understand the history and on-the-ground factors that often get overlooked in headline coverage. Since October, she has produced four Myanmar-related dispatches for the Foundation, including her most recent piece on this week's coup, which you can find on our homepage. Hi, Julia. Welcome to Asia Watch Beyond the Headlines. Hi, Stuart. Thank you for having me. First off, um, can you give us a quick background on what happened this week? And do you feel it was really a surprise? Well, for a quick background, I'm sure a lot of people have already read the news, but um, the military in Myanmar, which is also known as the Tatmada, um, seized power in a coup d'etat. And um, the alleged reason is that there was widespread election fraud, and they claimed that over 8.6 million ballots were invalid, which is something that independent observers, both within Myanmar and outside, have said that there is no evidence for. Um, I think a lot of people were surprised, especially because nobody really took the threat of a coup um, very seriously up until the very last days leading up to it. Um, but when we look back, and this is the power of neo-retrospective, is that um, there are certain factors that kind of contributed to the deterioration of civilian-military relationship that pushed um, the Tatmada to take such a drastic action. So, Julia, the facto leader Aung San Suu Kyi, once a global darling uh, who has fallen out of favor internationally over the Rohingya crisis, she was arrested along with the democratically elected leader of the government. So what does this coup really mean for her? What it means for her is basically a breakdown of her relationship with the military. So under the current uh, constitution, which was drafted by the Tatmada, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, and her party were in sort of a power sharing agreement. So um, they would run the government, but the military always had the upper hand because it is also free to pursue its own agenda. And so this kind of signals a displeasure that the military had with whatever Aung San Suu Kyi was pursuing. So she was really pushing forward for constitutional amendments that would bring the military under increasing civilian control. And at the same time, she consolidated power for her and uh, the NLD. Uh, by shoring up her own support base, by as well excluding the military from certain important talks or uh, institutions where the military would have pushed their interests or been able to sort of discuss issues that were of concern to them. And so this basically is an ousting of Aung San Suu Kyi from this uh, precarious arrangement that she had with the military. Now, in terms of what this means for Aung San Suu Kyi in the future, we don't really know 
what the military plans on doing because Aung San Suu Kyi is still under arrest. But critics of Aung San Suu Kyi would say that, well, she didn't really do anything to uh, make advances on her promises either, both on the inclusion of ethnic minorities, on the peace process. Uh, but Aung San Suu Kyi still, still represents the will of an overwhelming amount of Myanmar citizens who have voted for her. So we know that in the 2020 elections, her party received more than 80% of the votes. And so Aung San Suu Kyi represents democracy, whatever fragile and imperfect democracy it is. Um, but at the same time, Aung San Suu Kyi has to be mindful moving forward. Will she continue to uh, cater only to her own support base? Will she advance sort of a more inclusive Burmese nation that encompasses all ethnic minorities? That's something that we have yet to see. We're, we're losing hope on that vision because the military is now in control and we're only expecting that things will deteriorate from now on. Yeah, that's really interesting, Julia. So where are the big players on this situation right now? What's the thinking in the United States and China and Russia? Well, a lot of people have called this coup uh, one of the first tests for Biden's foreign policy. And uh, the Biden administration called it a coup, which uh, definitely shows the U.S. intentions of being a, uh, a leading player in the Asia Pacific in the world as well in defense of democracy. So the approach of Western governments is likely to be much of the same as what has been done before in uh, response to human rights abuses by Myanmar, Western governments put in place sanctions. But what we're, what we have to be careful about now is whether or not these sanctions should not be blanket, of course, because um, it would target and harm um, the wrong people, so uh, ordinary citizens of Myanmar. So sanctions, if they are to be placed, should be on mil the military and specifically military business interests. Um, and so it's going to be a bit of a challenge to um, hit where it hurts, um, let's say. At the same time, it poses a bit of a problem for aid and humanitarian efforts as well. We know that, you know, well, we expect that because the military is in control, there's going to be reluctance to allow um, civil society organizations and other international uh, organizations from uh, possibly sending relief for those in need. And so the question is also, how will we be able to engage with these generals who clearly we've seen that they are not affected by um, any consideration about international Western opinions. So this is going to be a bit of a challenge for, for Western countries and including Canada as well. Um, in terms of China, China, a lot of people have said that maybe they're behind the coup and these claims are unfounded because China does have an interest in keeping Myanmar stable, uh, both for economic reasons, but also because it shares a border with Myanmar and more uh, fighting or uh, instability would not be good for, for China as well. Um, but that said, 
China is very consistent in its approach to uh, any foreign policy advocating for non-intervention. So it's going to be a challenge for Western countries as well to um, sort of work with China because any sanction or any measures that Western countries put without China's uh, approval or cooperation might not be as effective to, like I said, again, hit where it hurts or push the generals to revert the situation at best, but or, or else uh, simply just quell violence if, if, it, if it arises and protect vulnerable peoples in Myanmar. So this is something that uh, needs to be considered. So Julia, this is all really interesting. Uh, Canada has been, a vocal, has been vocal on human rights abuses in Myanmar. And our current ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, was Prime Minister Trudeau's special envoy for the Rohingya crisis and has been quoted in the media a lot this week. So are there implications of the coup for Canada? Canada has been a really strong supporter of the ongoing uh, dispute at the International Court of Justice uh, involving uh, the Gambia and Myanmar. So Myanmar is alleged to have perpetrated um, crimes against humanity, uh, including genocide. And so now that the uh, generals, the very ones who are accused of such crimes against humanity, are in charge of the country, we don't really know how this this case is going to involve and what sort of implications or complications that will have for the case itself and for Canada. And so uh, this is something that we will have to see. Well, thanks, Julia. I mean, great work reporting on a, on the democratic process or, or lack thereof in, in Myanmar. Uh, you know, Julia, again, one of our bright young researchers at the foundation and uh, really quite involved in what's going on in Asia right now. So thanks again, Julia. We'll be back in 15 seconds with Aaron Williams, the foundation's senior program manager responsible for our, our Asia competence pillar. Hi, Aaron. Uh, welcome to Asia Watch Beyond the Headlines. You've been working with the foundation for a number of years now. And you've been really working on something that in my mind is really critical for Canada's uh, performance in Asia, which is Asia competence. Can you tell our listeners, what does Asia competence mean, uh, not just for you, but in general? Asia competence is the shorthand phrase that we use to refer to different types of knowledge and skills and experiences that a, a person, a Canadian in this case, would need to be effective and respectful in their engagement with a, a counterpart or a potential partner, either in Asia or from Asia. And this is obviously very situational. So for example, what you would need to meet a potential business partner in Japan would be very different from what a person would need if they were teaching English in rural Vietnam or hosting a student from India here in Canada. I mean, one of the problems that we have uh, from a Canadian perspective is when we think of Asia, uh, we usually think of one country at a time. So back in the 80s and 90s, it was Japan. Today is China. But Asia is much bigger than that. And that's what you're basically talking about when you're talking about Asia competence. It's understanding that the region is huge with all sorts of different uh, attitudes, values, uh, political systems. And it's important for us to understand that. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I remember growing up and telling people that I was going to be studying Chinese and people sometimes mistook that for Japanese and would make this comment, oh, Chinese, Japanese, 
same thing. And we know that that's about as ridiculous as thinking about the US and France and saying, oh, the US, France, same thing, that they're very, very different. So part of Asia competence, I would say one of the kind of foundational things that people need to learn is just that it is such a tremendously diverse country in terms of political systems, in terms of language, culture, religion, social class. Um, and that we, I think we kind of owe it to ourselves to be a little bit more informed of what those differences are. And so what does this mean and why is this important for Canada? It's very, very important for Canada. And I think a lot of Canadians are, you know, are, are kind of with us in understanding this. For example, there are commercial interests, there are diplomatic interests, there are education and research interests. But I think just the overarching reason is just simply that I, Asia is, is increasingly becoming the region of the world that is defining the future. The good news, Stuart, is that, as you know, from our most recent national opinion poll, a lot of Canadians are also recognizing that this is important. And of course, one of the things that we've done through our Asia competence pillar is what we call our Asia Pacific curriculum project. And this is um, an initiative in BC, working with the BC Ministry of Education to introduce more of a focus on Asia and Asian Canadian studies into BC schools. We asked this question in our poll going back to 2012, whether Canadians also think this is important. And as of our most recent poll, which was in fall 2020, an average of 63% of Canadians agree that, that we should be placing more emphasis on teaching about Asia in Canadian schools. And this is up more than 20 points uh, over the last eight years. To borrow some phrasing from your fellow former Canadian diplomat, Stuart, a man named Peter Sutherland, um, he mentioned in a talk a number of years ago that in Canada, we, we do a reasonably good job of teaching about the countries that matter to our past. We're not doing nearly enough to teach about the countries that matter to our future. And so that's where APF Canada, we are in, in our way, trying to close that gap. And I guess this is literally the million dollar question. Are we investing enough in this right now? And what do we need to do uh, compared to you know, taking a look at some of our like-minded countries and their investments in building Asia competence? How do we compare? I think we're, we're slowly coming around to seeing the need to make those investments. But when we compare ourselves to, for example, Australia, New Zealand, um, even the United States, I think we're, we're really, really falling short. Australia in, I believe it was 2008, identified three what they called cross-curriculum priorities. Um, these were sustainability, Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and Asia and Asia's importance to Australia. So this was something that they identified as a, a, a priority area that cut across different curriculum areas, different, you know, different disciplines, social studies, language arts, science, and so on. Um, even in the United States, I was listening to a talk last week by teachers um, and administrators of Chinese language programs in the United States that are continuing, despite the fact that the US and China have a very tense relationship. And one of the things that I found most inspiring is that a lot of these programs are in schools where there are barely any Chinese American or Asian American students. A lot of them are Hispanic American, African American, but that they're, they're very, very committed to kind of reinforcing the importance of being able to know this country at a, an intimate, such an intimate level that, that, that you need to be able to speak that country's language. So Aaron, thank you very much for, uh, for some thoughts on Asia competence. And uh, my last question to you, uh, I know you're from Wisconsin and you're a cheesehead, so uh, you must be a little bit upset by what happened with the Packers losing to the Buccaneers. What's your, what's your prediction for the 
Super Bowl this weekend. Disappointed is putting it mildly. And what I would say is that while at APF, we, we try to take a very, very nonpartisan perspective when it comes to matters of football, I think I will um, in respect to our former Asia Pacific Youth Council president, who was a big Kansas City Chiefs fan, I think I will say that I'm cheering for the Chiefs this weekend. Well, thanks a lot, Aaron, for, uh, for your thoughts and your predictions. Uh, I don't know what the line is uh, for the weekend, but uh, I think I might share your views and, and support the, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs as well. Well, that wraps up this week's deep dive into events in Asia that Canadians need to understand. I hope you've been, enjoyed this segment. And for twice weekly free intelligence and analysis, please subscribe to Asia Watch or visit our website at www.asiapacific.ca. Thanks again to Julie and Aaron for your time and, and efforts in putting this together. Thank you.